Hello and welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. How's everybody doing? Staying on ground, I hope? Yeah, where we belong, right? We don't <laughs> got wings. We can't even glide. Why do oh, don't even get me started on the, the, the gliders, those guys. Right? Oh, yeah, the extreme gliders. I watched one that was like, I think it ended up being a Red Bull commercial, honestly, on YouTube the other day, but it was this dude that was like gliding through a city. Have you seen Dude. Have you seen this video? I'm going to send you the... Link. I've seen many like it. Yeah, um, I'm sure I can imagine. Have. You know, they go through like little narrow passages yes. and stuff going, fucking traveling like 150 miles an hour or whatever yes. the speed they're going. It's like if they're one, if they're like six to eight inches one way or the other, they could have just ripped their arm off. Just splat. You know, they're, like, they're just, yeah. <laughs> just bug juice on a wall. Yes. It's insane. insane. How fast Like, going. why even wear a helmet at that point, honestly? Uh, right? What is the point <laughs> Going 150 helmet? miles an hour. What is the point to preserve preserve your skull for science? Yeah. I don't even think that's going to work. It's one of those things so. where I'm looking at it one, like, I'm looking at it different. I'm like, I'd rather not have the helmet, so I'm hyper aware of my surroundings so I don't hit something because the helmet ain't oh. going to save me. Or if it, if it hampers my vision or anything at all, I'd rather not yeah. have it. I think most of those guys are just wearing the helmet for the uh, GoPro attachment. Right. You know? That's that's the only yeah, that's reason true. really to wear it, so you can get the yeah. you can get the full view of what the glider sees, you know. Yeah. But this but, is, this is a whole other animal here, skydiving. Skydiving? Would you ever do it? Have you ever done it? Fuck no. Yeah, no. that's the way I feel after, especially no. after this. No, especially <laughs> after this. There's a scene that we're going to talk about in this that just reading it fucking gave me chills. One of the most terrifying deaths we've ever covered on this show. No doubt. In, in, in my estimation. Just like this, is, I don't know if it's just custom to me. It just freaks me out, but I don't know. I guess. No, listen. How I'm do you not, feel about it? Like just, uh, just this victim in this one, just knowing, falling and knowing. Having the yeah, awareness. you're about to hit the ground and, and, you know, in a matter of seconds and there's nothing that can stop it. Yeah, dude. It's absolutely terrifying. That's, that's understandable. And I'm not afraid of heights. I'm not afraid of heights, but this this terrifies me i'm afraid of falling and smashing on the ground you know like that's the reality it's like who is afraid of heights it's you're afraid of falling from the height honestly when you take everything into account all the context to this one where the the victim had done thousands of jumps literally and Mm -hmm. jumped out like it was any other day having a good time like there's there was no lead up to it like it was just like instant realization like oh my god right i have no shoot like this is the equivalent the of happened? going this is the equivalent of like going for a jog every single day on the same path and then a car just like broadsiding you out of nowhere and killing you instantly. Not it's even because like, you you at least that you wouldn't know it was coming until it hit you for the most part. This is that's like true. you got like 30 seconds to think about it. Mm. Like you're jogging on a path and then a puma comes out and you see it running up at you. Not getting that one either, but okay. <laughs> You're not getting that one? Okay. <laughs> Maybe a, a bear it? starts toying with you and like slowly killing you. Well, I'm know. saying like, they say you're running, right? And then up ahead in the path, you see this mountain lion that's like running alongside you. Have you ever seen that video of the tiger that's like chasing the Jeep through the forest? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like that. See, you have a few seconds to know I'm about to die. And this was yeah. just a normal okay. day. Just a normal okay. day. You All know? right, I'm picking up on what you're putting out there. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's it's kind of similar. Is this a good enough yeah. intro for you guys? I think so. We're calling this episode Death from Above. <laughs> Cue the intro. Let's do it. They were friends. I'd say fair weather. On the weekends, they spend time together. Jumping out of planes. There's nothing better. 
Except maybe Friday nights Cause that's when he'd get her all alone Just him and her all alone Just him and her all alone Just him and her all alone All alone Everyone knows the night don't last forever Lust comes and goes but hurts more now than ever Feels like second best whenever she's around As luck would have it she was last on the ground All alone, dead, alone. dead from above Cold hearted killing in the name of love It was dead, dead from above Cold hearted killing in the name of love It was dead, dead from above Cold hearted killing in the name of love It was dead, dead from above Our case this week involves skydiving, if you couldn't tell. So we're going to start out this episode with some facts about skydiving and kind of ease you into this thing. Yeah. So I have uh, some information from an article from 2017, and the publisher is in a website called inverse.com. Here's some quotes from um, this article about skydiving. Every year, over half a million people voluntarily jump out of planes just to free fall 13,000 feet. So it's anywhere from 13,000 to 15,000 mm-hmm. from my understanding. Either way, um, is the height you fall from. Yeah, nuts either way, right? Mm-hmm. According to the United States Parachute Association, this daring league of uh, adrenaline junkies, newbies, and skydiving competitors make 3.2 million jumps in a year, and 500,000 of them are first time. I believe that. So that's from an article from 2017. So I'm guessing not much has changed in the last four years as far as the numbers of people doing it. Yeah, they probably Maybe actually... Maybe it up a couple ticks. But... They, they probably actually went up, I would think, during the pandemic. People yeah. are like, ah, fuck it. The world's going crazy, right? Let's skydive. Now's the time. No joke. Yeah, and also <laughs> fairly safe. Like you're not that close to people. Uh, you know, there's a small group. You could probably go with your own group of people, and yeah, everybody get tested and go or whatever. It makes sense though that uh, half a million are first timers every year. You know, because that's probably the only yeah. time they do it. I think most people skydive and they're like, "That was good. That's off the bucket list now." You know exactly right. They don't become like a lot of full timers. Yep. So in 2007, researchers published an article in the journal Behavior Research and Therapy on time perception for first-time skydivers and found that people who reported being more frightened also reported the fall lasting longer than it actually was, which... Duh, that makes sense. When I heard that, I just couldn't help but think of the victim in this case because I'm sure it was going by quickly until she tried to pull her chute and realized that neither her chute nor her backup, her reserve chute, were were going to work. And right. then that fall probably took a long time just thinking about everything. But maybe, or maybe you felt like it was flying by and your life was flashing before your eyes. And you were like, perhaps, my like, last... I need more time. I need more yes. time. You know, we got to figure something out here. Yeah. yeah. Um, people who were excited, however, had a time flies when you're having fun experience and thought that the dive went by faster than it actually did. Objectively speaking, that free fall normally lasts for about a minute. Ooh. So the free fall from the time they jump from the plane until they pull their chute 
um, I believe, lasts for a minute, that free fall part. And then it's a few more minutes from that point until you hit the ground. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I was about to say, ground yeah. plane to the ground in a minute. That's insane. No, it's certainly longer than okay. that. Once you pull your chute, you, you're obviously going at much lower speed right, and right, you drift right, for a while. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so from the moment you jump out of the plane to the moment you land, your body experiences a variety of different speeds and accelerations. Javier Avendano, a neuromuscular disease researcher and avid skydiver, tells Inverse that rapid acceleration only lasts three to four seconds. After that, there is, a high, there is high speed but no acceleration, which gives the relative feeling of floating. The sensation is due to air molecules pushing back against your body as gravity pulls you towards the ground. Right. So once you hit a so certain you hit speed. the speed of about yeah you hit the speed of about 122 somewhere around there 120 Ooh. to 125 in that window and you can't go any faster than that because once again uh, air is pushing against you. That's getting it though. Um, I mean that's fast. So no matter enough. how high you jump from, once you hit that top speed. So like when you jump off, you know if someone falls off a building, jumps off a building, they hit that top speed. And that's that. You don't go any faster than that. Yeah. Well, like I said, that's plenty fast but, enough, uh, right? Oh, 100, yeah, definitely plenty fast to, to kill you. Oh, sure. Uh, after a few seconds of this, you reach a steady speed of 110 to 120 for about 30 to 50 seconds before you deploy your parachute at 3,500 feet and slowly glide down to earth. The speed of the plane you're riding in before your jump is close to the speed which you free fall. Quote from... When you come out of a plane, you're already flying at 100 miles an hour. That's a good point because the plane's going 100 right, plus. Right, so. right, right. Air resistance increases with speed. Quote, terminal speed is the speed at which the air resistance pushing upward cancels gravity pulling downward. Cancel means that the net force is zero, which means that acceleration is zero, which means that speed doesn't change. So when you reach your terminal speed, you stay at that speed. Once again, right around 120 miles an hour. So... And according to the United States Parachute Association, there were approximately 2,140 injuries for the, count, for the country total in 2018 in the United States, which equals, uh, equates to one in about every 1,536 skydivers, or 0.07% of all jumps, while fatali uh, fatalities were even less. Right. So fatalities are exceedingly rare. Yes, because... And the type of fatality in which we're covering this week is extraordinarily rare, where both shoots don't work, and that's because in this case, uh, the shoots were... Her shoot was sabotaged. Right. That's I was just by about someone to say. who murdered her. That's, that's why we're doing a true crime episode. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the only way that that seems like the only way that this would typically fail. I mean, obviously, with all the jumps and all the people in the world, there's been people who just had two faulty shoots. Um, yeah, I mean, it comes down to doing your due diligence and you know inspecting your your uh, shoots before every jump and all of that and, and i'm sure some people do so many jumps that you you get to the point where you get lazy or you get comfortable you know yep. th and then accidents can happen i'm sure but that's in everything though right it's like when you got that new it's like just like commercial airliners yeah. you know you have to be inspected constantly right in order for it to be safe that's right that's right you can't get too comfortable man you can't forget about i think it's shit. more often that uh there's collisions while in the air between jumpers when they jump in groups and then that's much more likely uh i think that's where most of those deaths come from to be honest is collisions in the air and they get knocked and unconscious someone's knocked out yeah they get knocked out and then they're not able to pull their chute obviously and someone's trying to fly over I, I saw one instance actually very recently where uh an instructor uh tried to save someone who had gotten knocked out and like flew over and was like trying to pull their chute for them and then they ended up both perishing he was a hero trying to save this woman and uh he stayed, wasted so much time trying to pull her for hers for her that he got too close to the ground and they both ended up dying couldn't he grab her and pull his though 
I don't know, man. I mean, I, I think he was he was so far away by the time he saw that she was not going to be able to pull her shoot that like it, it just he didn't have enough time to do that. He just wasn't close enough to her at all, probably. Yeah. Wasted a bunch of time getting over to her, and then by then it was too late anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, you got a minute before you got to pull that shoot. That ain't long. Yeah. No. It's not long. There were 13 skydiving-related deaths in 2018, or one in every 253,669 skydives, which is 0.0004% of all jumps. So very safe when you know all the precautions are taken. Right. But still not safe enough for me. Um, still not doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not that. Yeah. I just and feel so like I'm, I wouldn't enjoy it, you know? Just the whole experience. I just don't think I would enjoy plummeting to the earth at that speed. I think it would be yeah, less I, exciting. I I'm just getting old because I don't feel like I need the adrenaline from anything dangerous anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I'm happy. I'm just good. Living, man. Yeah. I'm cool. I'm, I don't I'm need appreciative to like of my life. my life to be at risk <laughs> to have a good day. <laughs> right. Or to have a good time. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. So imagine how long the fall would feel once you realized both your main and shoot, uh, reserve shoots had failed. That that uh, that m- another minute or two that you have of falling. Mm. And of course, as we talked about, all those is extraordinarily rare and probably only happens when someone intentionally tampers with the shoots. This is what uh, our victim faced this week. Um, and I wanted to bring up that this week I coincidentally read uh, Working Stiff Again. We covered that book that that was part of our research into our death episode we did an episode just on death yes and everything surrounding death we did that on patreon probably a year or two ago yes and we used working stiff and we used smoke get in gets in your eyes yes, by caitlin dowdy about, uh, yes very good. caitlin dowdy did smoke gets in your eyes and judy melanick the medical examiner did working stiff great books and i re-listened to that book just because i loved it so much and uh coincidentally she talked uh about times where bodies you know, bodies that she had examined from people who had fallen from large heights. And I just thought it was interesting. Some of the takeaways was that the bodies a lot of times look normal, actually, from like, even when someone falls from like eight stories, I'm sure they're hitting that top speed of the same, you know, the same speed that someone hits from falling from a plane. Because like we said, you you hit that 120 mark and it doesn't go any, you don't go any faster. So, and even hitting concrete, a lot of times the damage is internal, like your organs just are shredded but your body still looks fairly normal depending on how you land. Obviously, if you land, you know, in a, on your leg or something, if, if you land somewhat uh, horizontal to the ground, yeah, it looked pretty fairly normal. That's incredible. You, I, I guess just because right. you're probably, your bones shatter, right? And so and your skin there's nothing is so to, there's nothing to protrude elastic the skin. as well. Right, but there's nothing to protrude the skin because it all obliterated, right? Yeah, yeah it's all internal damage. Wow. I would. I wouldn't have thought that though. I still would think that the skin would be torn and misshapen. There is, of course, occasions. I, I think it's. It is also commonplace for the skin to tear and there to be exposed fat and things like that. But for the most part, they, they're totally recognizable. Uh, you. You know, so, some people might assume you'd just be just completely flattened and mangled. Yeah. and Unrecognizable, but that's not always the case. Wow. Interesting. So for our case this week, we were traveling to Belgium. I don't know. I can't think of another case we did in Belgium. Can you? Uh, not off, not offhand. No, we may have done like oh. some Belgian natives, uh, maybe featured some people from Belgium, but I don't think we've done a case. Yeah, we might have had a European serial killer that stopped off in Belgium yeah. at some point or something. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, but I don't think we've. Although had a case. I never thought about it until just now, but doesn't it seem like the serial killers we've covered in uh, in Europe and overseas they almost never travel as much as the ones in the United States. All the serial killers we do in, in the United States, they're all just jumping around from state to state and stuff like that. Yeah. But in, 
the serial killers that we've covered in like the UK and stuff, they seem like they always just stay in the town they're in and just kill a bunch of people there. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's harder to get around, man. I don't know. I think we uh, take our interstate systems for granted over here in the United States, maybe. It's pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, it's almost a straight shot to go east to west across the United States. And then like you can go yeah. straight up the east coast and you can go straight up the west coast. See what I mean? Like that's that and there was all the you know the, all the issues that come along with a fairly new nation when it came to like the seventies and a lot of these serial killers they were still like no communication between jurisdictions and all that that we've talked about I don't know if they had those same issues over in Europe because they've just been around so much longer oh I'm sure I'm sure they have but, yeah they're not so excluded. this case is in Belgium we meet Els Van Doren who was an experienced skydiver with twenty three hundred jumps over twenty three hundred jumps uh, under her bag. Um, at Genk, Belgium, the Zwartberg Parachute Club, of which Els was a member, she was also a mother of two and married to a jeweler in Antwerp. So Els loved skydiving. That's all she did on the weekends. You know, she would she had her home life with her husband and her, her two children. Right. And then on the weekends, she was basically uh, staying at like a cabin or a lodge and just skydiving the whole weekend. That was her passion. Just getting in all those jumps. Yeah. Yep. Whew. And then she would get hooked up with a group of uh, like-minded individuals who loved to skydive. In the early 2000s, Els met another Els, Els Klodemans, uh, who was a 25-year-old primary school teacher with a history of um, some psychological issues, uh, which would come out later. Um, she also met Dutch skydiver Marcel Mars Sommers, who was 25. And this group would be very close for the next few years, jumping together every weekend, hanging out all the time, becoming good friends. Yeah. Els Van Doren spent her weekends and her time skydiving and being with Marcel Sommers at the skydiving club or at his home. And this is where they start having an ongoing affair. Els Van Doren would be sleeping with Marcel Sommers um, on weekends while they would go skydiving and then go back to his place. And right. uh, they would be frequently sleeping together. Yeah. She was basically... Uh, unbeknownst to her husband. Yeah. Uh, she had this double life going on. I was about on. to say, she was basically living a double life. But, I mean, everything seemed to be mm -hmm. working fine, though. It wasn't like her husband felt like, you know, his needs weren't being met, though. Although he didn't know yeah. about this. <laughs> it sounds... Um, there was a quote from him later on, and he said that they, they hadn't been having... Um, they hadn't been having sex for a while. They were just kind of at that point in their marriage right. or whatever. They had, they had the two young children and they were just, yeah, they, that part of the sensual part of their relationship, it kind of drifted apart. Right. Uh, well. And here's a quote from the, the jump club that they were in, the manager of it, a guy named Jurgen Camps. He said, quote, I had a conversation with Els Van Doren about her double life as a mistress of Marcel Sommers and as the wife of Jean, of Jan D. Wild, uh, which was her husband. Club members believed that Els Van Doren was separated from her husband, However, Els explained, with Marcel, I have a nice time on weekends, and with Jan, pleasant things during the week. I carefully compartmentalized both worlds. So it was working for her. Her husband yeah. had no idea, and everything was fine at home. Yeah, sounds like it. It seems like it was working fine, yeah. and I think <laughs> their lives would have went on like this, bar this tragic event. Exactly. But of course, it was more complicated than just uh, you know a weekend... Uh, kind of yeah, uh, adulterous fling, thing going right. on here yeah. because there was a there was another member there was a, a, a triangle here that Els Van Doren may not have even been aware of but whether she knew it or not the other Els was also sleeping with Marcel Marcel was quite the womanizer here mm -hmm. oh, he kept both women in the dark as well about his close relationship with the others or so he thought but of course you couldn't only keep that hidden so so much because they were a close 
knit group of friends that were hanging out all weekend. I was weekend. about to say, they're at the same every cabin weekend. every weekend yeah. skiing together. Yeah. Yeah. Probably meeting yeah. down at the uh, the Continental Breakfast together before they hit the hills or before they hit the plains, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the hell they're doing. Mm-hmm. So in November of 2006, a week before they would uh, go jump in a formation together, all three stayed at Marcel Sommers' home for the weekend. Uh, only it wasn't the younger Els sharing his bed. It wasn't Els Klotteman. It was Els Van Doren. Uh-oh. And Els Klotteman had been spending quite a bit of time in old uh, Marcel's bed, and she was not a fan of seeing Els Van Doren taking that spot uh, that she believed was hers. Um, she that. ended up sleeping in a sleeping bag in the living room. So she was kind of left in the dark here, kind of put out. Ooh, she was number wheel. two. She realized she was number two. Yes. And this coincidentally, where she was put in the living room in her sleeping bag, was the same room in which Els Van Doren's parachute and other gear were located. Dun, dun, dun. So she's in a bit of a jealous rage. This is the theory um, because she's uh-huh. been put out by her lover and you know her friend. Her, yeah, you know, people have killed for a lot less. Her friend, who many would say is more attractive than her and kind of, you know, more outgoing and, you know, Els Claude, Claudeman has issues um, dating back to childhood and uh, she also has self-esteem issues and almost right. everybody we'll in the club and everybody that knows her notes notes that she has odd behavior quite often and that she's she's quiet and a little bit odd of a person. Right, right. But also, Van Duren is, you know, a more experienced, a more mature woman mm-hmm. as well. You know what I mean? So she has she has a lot to offer, especially a young man like Marcel. Yeah. You know, because Van true. Duren's probably what? She's probably late 20s, early 30s at most, though. Yes. She's not much older than him. So, yeah, I mean, it's this is big competition for Clodemans yep. at this point. So this, this brings us to the day. Uh, November 18th, 2006 at noon. They set off for their their fun formation uh, jump that they were going to do. They were going to do a star formation, um, just one of many jumps they had done before and would continue to do, they thought. Right. And uh, so on November 18th, 2006 at noon, 12 members of the club fly over Flanders expecting to enjoy their day of skydiving. Tom Bolsius, who leads the band, waves his arms, he smiles, he gives the signal for them to exit, and at 13,000 feet, Els Van Doren... Marcel Sommers and Tom leap out of the Cessna expecting to, to perform aerial maneuvers during their fall. However, Els Claudemans is supposed to be a part of the star formation with the four holding hands as they drop, but she doesn't jump with them. She, she waits mm. a few minutes, or I don't know, not minutes, but seconds, which are pivotal, of course. You're going to be a part of this oh, formation. Of course. You have to jump yeah. simultaneously. Anything, I was about to say, anything after them is too late. Too late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. probably a half a second is too late. So Els, a quote from her, Els Clodemans, she says, quote, I jumped a fraction too late to join the other three. Doesn't look good on her when you mm. consider everything. Um, Man, and how many times have you done this? Exactly. Wow, you're not I mean, a rookie out here. What are you doing? It's kind of hard to miss the, the signal, you know? The, you're, you're watching the guy right. to give you the signal to jump, and everybody else jumps, and why, why are you still waiting? I was about to say, worst case scenario, you jump when the other three people beside you jump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. How hard is that? So Els Van Doren, Els Van Doren was wearing a helmet with a mounted camera to record the jump, as I'm sure most of them were, if not all of them. It's very commonplace in the modern days to to keep that. Whether you're doing the the bat suit or whatever it is, the flying squirrel yeah, suit. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, you didn't record it. Of, it didn't happen, bro. That's right. 
And uh, as Els Van Doren first floats on her back, she looks at the clear sky and then turns her body and looks at the Limburg countryside, un- completely, you know, just enjoying the day and unaware that neither of her shoots yeah. were going to work. At the signal to open shoots at 9,000 feet, as the team separates, Els Van Doren struggles but fails to open her chute as she hurtles towards the ground. She tries to pull her reserve, her reserve cord to no avail. Suddenly, the helmet cam... So this, this footage is out there somewhere. I did search for it, but I, I gave up, and maybe that's for the best not seeing this because it's got to be pretty hard to watch. Oh, my God. The video from her, for, from her helmet of her panicking and, and realizing that she's going to die. Um, yeah, it's going to be hard enough to hear you read through this. Yeah. The, the video footage is... Yeah, it's got to mm, be dark. I'm sure it's got to be. So suddenly the helmet cam video starts to shoot back and forth. The camera looks up. The white reserve parachute over Els Van Doren remains closed. She keeps pulling at the ropes, but her er- efforts are in vain. She desperately tries to open the parachute, but the remaining three hanging straps are intertwined. And Marcel Sommers and the other jumpers can only watch in horror as Els Van Doren plummets, also looking on as her friend Els Clodemans. Els Van Doren knows mm-hmm. that she's going to die, and the camera mounted on her helmet captures her screams, panic, and increasingly frantic struggles to open her chute. And she can be seen looking up desperately, hoping to see an open shoot. That image, yeah, that's got to stick with you for the people that were above Back her, seeing forth. her looking up, just yes. praying that a parachute is going to open above her and, and never does. The video ends as she impacts upon the ground and into the shrubbery of a nearby garden. So she landed in a, you know, an older couple's garden and was dead on impact. Marcel Somers also had a video on his camera, video camera on his helmet, and the video follows Van Doren downward. When he sees Van Doren's difficulties, he swims in the air and opens his parachute as fast as possible. He lands upon a lawn. Upon landing, he utters a heart-wrenching primal scream because he understood that her jump was fatal. And on the ground, he began running through the neighborhood looking for Els Van Doren. So he's obviously very concerned and uh, oh. distraught over his his friend and lover's you know potential death here. Absolutely. And we get some odd behavior on the part of uh, Els Clodemans. She her, she reacted different than the others when it came to this. Um, when the jump club manager, Jurgen Camps, announced to the team that Van Doren had died, Els Clodemans uh, collapsed and started crying. The others reacted with disbelief, not realizing that Van Doren was dead. She actually started, like, collapsed before he even finished saying that Els had died. Uh, Els Van oh. Doren had died, which uh, the yeah. people found odd, and they also her reaction was, they said, was over the top. Which, if if your but, friend I mean, you perishes, have to know that... go ahead. I, I think it's. I think what they're going on is that they had the natural reaction as a group, like disbelief initially, and her reaction right. was like almost like she already knew, of course, that Els had died. Right. I mean, they all knew that she died. You would think, though. right? I mean, seeing her plummet with no parachute, of course, to she the did. Ground. Right. Of course, no one's going to survive a fall from an airplane. Like, yeah. Come on. But especially fact, landing but, straight but on ground, right. there are people that have survived that hit trees and things like that to kind of uh, right. sl- slow their fall down. But they get obviously the very ocean. hurt. Right, right. But but I see what you're saying though. The fact that there were so many people on site to gauge a general natural reaction, yes. and then hers was the only one that was different. Yeah. Regardless of how she reacted, it's super suspicious. Right. Right. Because you have you have a you have a control. For this experiment, you have all yeah. these people who definitely aren't involved, and you got their reaction, and they're all the same. They're all mm-hmm. similar. So yeah, that's interesting. It's a very interesting part of it. Yeah. So Wally Elters, who was a witness at the drop zone airfield, says, "Quote: I was working on my plane when I heard someone on the ground screaming and pointing at the sky. I looked up and saw a black spot falling and quickly to the ground. It was wiggling about, and it was pretty obvious it was a person. 
Above it were three people in parachutes coming down slowly. Then this person hit the ground. It was an appalling moment. And then there was the testimony of Paula Don't, who uh, owned the property that Els Van Doren would land in. She was she that was her garden that Els landed in. Um, oh she said, God. "quote I wanted to hang out the laundry. I first heard uh, wearing, and then a little ter- and then a terrible thud in the bushes. I saw right, a white. She cloth. heard the wind noise. Yeah, of her body. Oh man, that's freaky, right? Through the air. That's what she heard. Yeah. That's how fast she's traveling. You can hear the." The, the actual Absolutely. wind that her body's creating. I mean, imagine if a motorcycle went by your house at 120. You right. would definitely hear that shit. I yeah. mean, even bar the and then motor, take away the no and motor. take away the sound of the engine as well, and then you yeah, just that's hear what I'm that. saying. Yeah, or like a Tesla going by at 120. There you go. Yeah, because <laughs> there's no motor sound. Exactly. Um, she says, "In the bushes, I saw a white cloth, a leg, and a foot." Um, oh no. What's What's weird is that her parachute was scheduled to go undergo a routine safety inspection three days later so it was that time as well wow and so uh, in november not long after her death her funeral was held along with 1000 other persons els clodeman sat in the congregation at the funeral for her quote close friend even though her husband had requested that she not come that any members of the the club not go because obviously he was suspicious of how she died that someone was involved in her death had done it to her so Hell yeah not knowing who it was yeah their family's not stupid they knew they knew the odds and i'm sure i'm sure els uh van duren had talked to them about skydiving plenty of times i'm sure she, i mean as passionate about it as she was yeah they knew they knew the ins and outs of skydiving as well they weren't stupid right so els van duren's sister delivered the eulogy during which she Threw it out there. She stated, quote, you did all you could during that final jump to save yourself, but someone did not want you to live. Oof. Yeah. Shots fired. Get some of that. Yep. So following would be obviously an investigation by the police. You know, they after discovering that her shoots had been sabotaged, that lines had been cut, and actually the lines on her reserve shoot had been um, like tied together so that it wouldn't yep. operate properly. Um, police yep. would interview the members of the, of the skydiving club as well as Els Van Doren's family and friends, and investigators began to hone in on Els Clodemans as the killer once the love triangle was discovered. Once they found out about the, you know, the, the workings of their relationships, the fact that both of them were um, having oh, yeah. sex with, with uh, Marcel and that there right. was motive there and that Els Clodemans had the, she had the ability to be alone with the parachute and also had the knowledge as someone who had skydived as much as she had to be able to sabotage, you have to you have to right. know parachutes as well in order to do this properly without getting you know. Otherwise, uh, just a, a look over and a quick inspection of this would, if you didn't know what you're doing, you wouldn't know how to repackage yeah, it where it looks like it's fine. Exactly, and that's exactly what she did. She sabotaged it completely, but it still looked entirely fine. Mm-hmm. She has the motive. She has the passion for the crime. Yeah, yeah, it's not looking good for her. Yeah. This is this is easy easy person to narrow in on. Yeah, and she knew it as well. Els Clodemans was quoted saying, "I know it looks bad for me because I had motive, but I didn't do it. I deny it emphatically." And she would continue to deny it. Uh, she would tell Sounds investigators rehearsed. that she did quote, "I suffered from low self esteem and entered the relationship knowing I was second best." Authorities believed that Els Clodemans had, before the weekend the three spent at Somers' home, discovered that Marcel Somers was having an affair with with Els Van Doren and became jealous. Jealous enough to commit murder. They said that it was uh, when Els Clodemans made two key cuts, slicing the main parachute in strings in two, 
and tying strips of cloth around the reserve chute so that it would not open. Um, in December of 2006, hours before Els Clodemans was uh, to make a second statement to police, she attempted suicide, uh, leaving a note stating, quote, I want to be with my friend. So maybe right, she was some, unsuccessful. showing some guilt on her part there. Possibly. Do you know how she tried to commit suicide? It never said, no. no. Yeah, I couldn't find it either. I mean, it's, I guess curious. it's irrelevant. She didn't succeed, yeah. but she did attempt it. Right. Um, and she would soon be arrested for the murder of Els Van Doren. And throughout the 100 hours of interrogation by detectives, she maintained her innocence. Quote, they wanted me to confess, but confess to what? I couldn't confess. I hadn't, I hadn't done anything. Right. Um, <laughs> The public prosecutor, okay. Dirk Ronette, said, quote, she had a very important motive. We believe she set out to do this where there would be no competition for the affections of Marcel. Quote, jealousy was the motive for a coldly calculated killing. Yeah, it typically is. It is hard to, to see it is a lot. another scenario. Like, who else would have done it? But <laughs> I know, you just right? don't know, man. Like, there was a lot you of people can't. in their, their group that could, that could have potentially done it. They would have had the ability right. to get her shoot alone and had the know-how to, right. know how to do it. So... And also, you know, so many people like to, in these lover quarrels, they like to blame the husband. Well, the husband didn't even know about this. Right. So it's kind of hard to, uh, it's kind of hard to blame him for this. And he wasn't there. He didn't have any knowledge of parachutes and shit. He, he did have knowledge of parachutes. We'll get to that. But he, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. He did. Yeah. He did some time in the military. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to the husband and like the, because okay, okay, okay. the, of course, the defense tries to turn the eye to them, to him. Of course. They, they try to point That's at him. the only other, right. Who else you gone? Right. You got to pick someone else who would have some sort of passion involved in this case as well. Yep. So in 2008, Belgian papers published a letter from Els Klotemans from Belgium's uh, Haslett prison in which she states, quote, I always knew I was number two for Marcel. After her arrest, Els Klotemans would be freed on bail to await trial. Um, and a court psychiatrist would examine her uh, and find her to be psychopathic, narcissistic, and manipulative. And that was a common oh, theme. They had her... They had her uh, analyzed by several experts, um, psychiatric yeah. e experts, and they would almost all be in unison saying that she she had severe issues. Oh, yeah. It was a no-brainer. And everyone mentioned the words psychopathic and narcissistic. Yeah. Not good. Every single one. Yep. Not good at all. So her trial would begin in September of 2010, and they were going into this with purely uh, just basically circumstantial evidence and hearsay. Yeah, that's true. They had no that's physical evidence. No they physical, had nothing tying none. her. She, they, didn't have, they didn't find her DNA or any of her hair or anything like that on Els' right. parachute. They have nothing like, to <laughs> physically say that she, she tampered with that. But, you know, it's just... Right. This would never fly in America, dude. A, a good American defense attorney would get her ass off. Yeah, I, I would think so, man. This is, I, I don't know <laughs> I that mean, you could prove beyond a reasonable time. doubt. You know, she, she st was steadfastly denying... Um, yep. and you just have everyone basically damaged, like, talking about her character and how they, you know, they believe she did it. Everybody that knew her, everybody that was in the jump club basically pointed at her, including uh -huh. Marcel, who, with whom, you know, she was sleeping with. Uh, right. and then you have the fact that she had the opportunity to do it and the police believe she had the motive to do it and therefore she did it. And so at the that, trial, yeah. which began in September of 2010 on the table in the courtroom, lay the mud caked parachute and helmet that Els Van Doren wore on the jump the day of her death. So I guess that just adds a little bit of levity to it for the jury. You know, I'm sure the prosecution wanted that there just to kind of show how yeah. real this was, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, prosecutor Patrick Boyan from the indictment said, quote, there is enough evidence for the murder charge. 
as skydiver. She knew that she had the knowledge and the opportunity to sabotage the parachute. The indictment said it alleged that she made two key cuts in the parachute. On top of that, she had a relationship with Marcel, who also had a relationship with the victim, giving the accused motive a motive to have Marcel for herself, for her alone. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, how do you expect to get away with this, though, in hindsight? That's where the narciss- narcissism comes in, mm-hmm. right? Where you think that you're so much smarter and so much further ahead. And she thought, well, if they can't tie my DNA to this, I won't get convicted. To be fair, that's uh, we, we both kind of agree that in, in America, yeah. in most situations, she, I don't know that she should be convicted. I don't think there's – it's all circumstantial. I don't like convicting people to a life, life sentence for a murder when I'm not I'm, – I'm like 90% sure – Hills well, Clodemans did well, this, but I, I can't go beyond reasonable doubt from what I've everything I've read. Yes, there's a ton right. of stuff that looks bad on her character. There was definitely motive. She definitely had the wherewithal to do it, but there was also people in their jump club that had the ability to do this. They knew there's, how parachutes no work. Also, her uh, her Els Van Doren's husband. I'm not trying to you know throw mud on him, but he did have the ability to do it. And you could say if you were you know if you were you know, let's just say, hypothetically, a, a prosecutor, you could say her husband had motive because if he found out about the affair she was having with this this other guy, that's motive. Right. So right. it's tough. And we really don't know if he didn't know about the affair. No, he you don't. Th- this is based off the police saying when they told him, his reaction that, to them told him that his he didn't know. His body language. But that's... His body language. Yeah. He didn't even say anything. Right. So, mm, yeah, it's, also, it's just too circumstantial. Yep. It really is. This would just never fly, like you said. Now, she didn't get life, though. She only got 30 years. Right. You know, spoiler alert. But so she could get out in her 50s. Yeah. And maybe they thought that was a good compromise. I don't know. Yeah. So prosecutors said that Somers was sharing a bed on Friday nights with Clodemans and then Saturdays with Van Doren. Jeez. Uh they stated that on November 10th, 2006, a week before the murder, Clodemans was staying at the Somers home, as we know. And uh, when Van Doren showed up, they, they claimed that Somers then took Van Doren upstairs to bed when Clodemans was kept downstairs on a mattress in the living room. They argued oh. that Clodemans could hear the pair making love through the thin walls. Somers' parachutes were in the hall, and then it was alleged that Clodemans, consumed by jealousy, took the chance to interfere with them. This is all, once again, this is hearsay. Like, Yep. The whole their whole theory of like t- 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 she could hear them making love through the walls. It's like, is that how are we supposed to believe that that's exactly how that went down? You're just saying that. That exactly, exactly. When I read that, I was like, this sounds like something out of a book, like something that the right. defense attorney would just make up, because there's just no way you would know that. Because you know, Clodemans is not going to say that. She hasn't said that to anybody. No, she's denied. Why everything. would she do that? Yeah. yeah. Um. So but, it's, I mean, obviously <laughs> that would enrage someone, I guess. Yeah. We'll get but, to I mean, more, I we'll get to much more character about. stuff about Clodemans though, right. that, that definitely make her look like the type of person that would do this. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll have no problem co- convincing you of that. Yeah. Investigators found that the straps of both Van Doren's main and reserve chutes had been cut. Quote, Clodemans snipped the parachute strings and Van Doren jumped to her death a few days later. The jury also heard damning portraits of Clodemans' emotional state. A report by three psychologists depicted her as deeply psychopathic, but uh, able to maintain a facade. Quote, she was cold without emotion, they said, and a danger for society. She was described as being deeply disturbed by her father's death when she was two and having sought psychological help after suicide attempts at age 16. Once again, I don't know, man. Disturbed by your father's death at two? Of course you were. Of course you were, and of course, I mean, it, it, she sought I mean, psychological could, help when she was 16 as well. What more do you want her to yeah. do? 
But I mean, I could see how you could be affected from not having a father, like on your upbringing. But I don't know how you could be disturbed oh. by his death at two. Yeah, the memory. Right? How how much yeah, do you remember just, it too? Yeah. Well, I have a grandfather that died at two that I was allegedly very close to. I don't remember anything. Well, my daughter's too, and if I, I think she's so we're so close that I think if something happened to me, regardless suicide or just if I died in one way or another, it would deeply yeah. affect her. It is it, regardless of manner of death. Hmm. You know, just not yeah. seeing, not having me around anymore every day would definitely affect her. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I'm just saying, like the actual loss right away. I don't, I don't know if a two year old is processing that. Right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just seems like kids' memories kick in around four, five, six. Mm-hmm. Typically, as far as long term, long term psychological damage, I guess. But I don't know. I'm shooting from the hip. I don't fucking know. <laughs> hey, that's fine. That's what we do. Yeah, that's what. So Vic Van Eist, or Elst, uh, was the attorney for Els Claudemans, and he says, quote, this is nonsense. Since being released on bail in 2008, Claudemans had, been, had completed teacher training and worked as a primary school teacher in the Brussels district of Anderhelt. This is kind of scary to think. She's released on bail for you know a murder charge, awaiting trial, and she's still teaching primary school. Uh, like, that's, Well, you know... Her attorney is probably thinking, what better time? And she's been deemed psychopathic by three different psychiatrists, and yet they're leading, right. <laughs> letting her teach children. <laughs> it's a little bizarre to me. <laughs> well, you got to be psychopathic. I don't know what they're doing over there children. in Belgium. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Thank you, teachers. Yeah. Um, they're amazing. Quote, we will not deny that Ms. Claudemans has some problems, but she certainly is not a psychopath, says the defense attorney. And then we finally get to hear from good old Marcel, who testifying via video from the Netherlands suggested that Claudemans was unable to cope with his relationship with Van Doren. Quote, when Els and I went to bed, Babs kept turning it over. Something cracked, he said. She took a pair of scissors and cut the parachute cords. For me, that's the most realistic scenario. So from the man involved in the triangle between these two women, he's, he's pointing the finger directly at Claudemans. Prosecutors yeah, accused Claudemans. Do what? I said he was getting those vibes. He understood her jealousy and what she felt. Oh, yeah. He just didn't oh, yeah. care at the time. Right, which doesn't make him look like the best person either. Uh, right. But he's sleeping I with mean, a married woman knowingly it, who has children, and also he's like knowingly tormenting this other woman. Uh, it almost seemed like he was getting off on it, right? Like Van, Van Doren bit. shows up when it's Claudemans' night for them to, yeah. to get it on, and then he just like, blows her off and takes Van Doren up. Like, <laughs> it just yeah, seems throws her a sleeping bag in the living room. Right. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it, don't, it don't look good on anybody, really. So prosecutors accused Claudemans of sending anonymous letters to Van Dorn and making anonymous phone calls prior to the murder. Uh, another member of the Parachute Club in Zwartberg described Claudemans as a, quote, drama queen. Investigators... <laughs> wow, that's an understatement. <laughs> okay, but does that mean you're a murderer? I mean... Right, 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 right. Investigators found and presented that Els Claudemans was the author of an anonymous letter and anonymous phone calls to the victim, Els Van Dorn. And what's interesting is that on these letters, there was no DNA, which... Made me wonder, you know... I was about to say, how did they connect her to these letters again? Uh, I think she actually admitted to it, first of all. Oh, Claudemans yes. admitted to it. Yes, um, you're right. But okay. there was no DNA found on these letters, and that, that kind of makes me look... It makes it look like she's a little more guilty because they did find nothing. She was very careful to do this with the letters, which would lead you to believe she'd be careful tampering with a, a parachute to kill a woman. You know, she would not leave any traces on that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know she did. And she had plenty of time, too. She had all the time in the world with those parachutes, the whole night. Yep. 
So back in 2005, Els Klotemann sent the anonymous letter to Els Van Doren. She demanded that Els Van Doren choose between Marcel, Somers, and her husband and two children. So she was basically threatening to say that she would out her to her husband and ruin that relationship if, mm. um, you know, if she didn't choose one or the other. Right. And when, when that didn't work, she stepped it up, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Van Doren must have called her bluff and been like, what are you going to do about it? Are you actually going to yeah, tell him? Yeah, what are you going to do about yeah. it? Um, Els Klotemann's claims, I quote, I regret having sent that letter along with the anonymous phone calls to Els Van Doren. So she does admit that she had done these things. Doesn't yeah. make look, make her look good as far as... No, it does not. I bet you do regret that shit now. Mm-hmm. Um, she also, however, said, quote, we were friends for years and in the same skydiving club. Why would I kill my close friend? Gee, I don't know. Uh, we already told you. Because <laughs> you're <Yeah>. jealous. <laughs> yeah. People have killed for a lot less. Mm-hmm. A lot less. Yeah. yeah, it's not looking good at all. And when investigators told Marcel Somers that Els Klotemans was the author of the anonymous letter sent to Els Van Doren, he said, quote, I always thought that the author of that anonymous letter was the killer of Els Van Doren. Once again, pointing the finger directly at Klotemans. Yeah, he, and he knew who the author of those were. Yeah. Yeah. So here's some more knew. Here's some more right. weirdness, some more character stuff involving Els Klotemans that doesn't make it look good on her. Oh, Marcel yes, Somers... Yeah, this is Marcel on the about the weekend prior to the deadly jump, the weekend that they had that odd weekend they had spent together, the night supposedly that Klotemans had tampered with yes. Els Van Doren's parachute. He says, quote, Saturday, Els and I were naked in bed. Suddenly she, Babs, uh, being uh, El, Els Klotemans, stormed into the bedroom and jumped under the bed. I was between Els and Babs. She stayed there about 10 minutes. She was, quote, bored and was supposedly looking for a hairdryer. I believe she sabotaged the parachute in a fit. Els Van Doren. So telling. Right? Right. It just shows you her jealousy, right? She actually gets between them. Hey, are you guys busy? Oh, no, you're just sitting in here naked. Oh, you're nude in bed. Um, Okay. Have you guys seen the hairdryer? Why are you guys naked? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's awkward. Super. Yeah. Um, here's another quote from him, uh, quote, Els Van Doren remained until Sunday, November 12th. That same evening, Klotemans unexpectedly showed up again in Eindhoven. We are going to play pool in the evenings. Babs left, um, but she waited outside until Els Van Doren left. Quote, suddenly Uh she stood at my door. She was half dressed and jumped at me. We had sex, but it was rough sex. It was different than usual. So she, her behavior is more aggressive suddenly, you know, now that she knows, that she, it's in her face that him and Els Van Doren are having this ongoing relationship. Right. She's kind of like, remember me? She's given him one last chance to change his mind. Yeah. Also, I think it's important to note that like the day after Els Van Doren died, Els Klotemann was, showed up to Marcel's house and was aggressively trying to get him to have sex with her. And he was obviously distraught about Van Doren and was not into it. And she actually, like, he, according to him, she, like, masturbated in front of him and was, like, trying to seduce him into having sex with her. And he was like, no, like, my, my friend just died. And it might have been you that killed her. I'm not into this. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But see, she was hoping that he, he didn't truly love her. This was a test for her. She was like, if I can get him to forget yes. about her already, then that means he really cares about me and didn't care about her anyway. So that will make me feel a lot better. But yep. she got proved wrong. She got so proved that he Her did plan backfired. Her. It pushed yes. him away even more. Yep. 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 That's such a narcissistic move right there. Mm-hmm. It also came to light that four months before Els Van Doren's death, Els Klotemann was suspected of trying to drive her car against a plane piloted by her former boyfriend in the United yeah, that's States. that's some Grand Theft Auto shit right there. 
She's just she did trying it, to. Man. She did it. She tried to take out a plane with a car in the United States three months Holy prior, four shit. months prior. Like, who's to stop her from cutting the cords on a parachute if you're willing to ram a plane with a car with your ex-boyfriend right? driving it? Yeah, you're not thinking about consequences at all. Yeah. That plane That's... could have demolished you. That is wild. <laughs> That's a person that's like that has that that level of jealous rage. They were like they don't even think about consequences in that moment. That's what know? I'm saying. Yeah. There are no consequences. That that alone right there. These instances, this weird weekend that you're yeah. talking about here <laughs> and these weird that that is a lot of circumstantial evidence. And you know all mm-hmm. this came up in court. <clears throat> oh, but again, sure. all circumstantial. Yeah. And here's another thing that doesn't look good on her. Uh, on November 21st, 2006, three days after Van Doren's death, Els Klotemann calls for Marcel Somers to say that she'd found the pilot chute in a tree along the road uh, in Oplabeek. Opla um, so mm-hmm. she, basically, she found uh, Els' parachute that had the cords been cut, so her first chute drifted away from her body. And that might lead you to, that might answer Another reason why Els Clodemans would have waited a little longer so that she On could see where that chute landed so she could go recover it and get rid of the evidence. She yes. allegedly was seen scouring the area for the days post Els Van Doren's death. She was all around the area of the jump looking for that parachute and, and supposedly coincidentally finds it. Like she just happened to take a wrong turn. According to what she tells the police is that she just happened to find this thing. Um, the, oh, yeah, the, I bet. The pilot chute hung 14 meters high in a tree. You could only see it if you were really looking, investigators believe. The Sunday before Clodemans was looking, uh, that Sunday before, she was out looking for the chute, and then two days later, she uh, pretended that she happened to find it. She insisted in court that she she did, quote, happen to find it, that there was a traffic diversion and I was lost. While I was trying to orient myself, I saw something in a tree. I drove slowly because I, I was stuck behind a tractor. Wow, she really put that together, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sounds what a like coincidence. What a coincidence. Yeah. You know, you just happen to get, you know, get diverted and you get stuck behind this tractor. And of course dude, you find your about friends you. that you may have killed her parachute. Listen, I, I don't know about you, but I'm always looking 14 meters in the air when I'm stuck in traffic, bro. That's I just right. want to see what's going on up there, you know? Mm-hmm. So this seems normal. Yep. <laughs> Throughout the highly publicized trial, the dynamics between Marcel Somers, Els Van Doren, and Els Klotemann were at the heart of the case. The affairs with Somers uh, were not contested. And the intensity of those relationships and the motives for the murder were in dispute between the prosecution and the defense. And this was obviously a highly publicized. This was this had everything you'd want from the media perspective to uh, to sell papers and, and articles on this. Oh, of course. You got a love triangle, parachute death. Like this is this is good stuff. Oh yeah, this is a lifetime movie right here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so let's go in a little bit more of the the Clodman defense here. Deemed by the police, uh, the investigation as a botched investigation, according to her defense, calling it a yeah. bad movie from a bad director. They noted hey, that that's there what was I a- just did. <laughs> did you? I got him. I'm just kidding. Nice. Lifetime movies are fine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? There, I've I enjoyed several of them growing up. Yeah, yeah. There, there's some good ones out there. There's some. There good are. Ones. Yeah. There was one that sticks out uh, with Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon. It was a Lifetime movie where he was abusive. And yeah, her father was the was the guy from CSI. I forget his name. The main guy from the CSI Las Vegas. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah. It was like a battle between this psychopath Mark Wahlberg and her father trying to protect her from from uh, Wahlberg. It was, it was good. Wow, I didn't know Wahlberg was in a Lifetime movie. Dude, that's what I'm saying, right? They they used to be they used to be some high end Lifetime movies. 
What's that guy's name? Horatio? You talking about the redheaded guy from CSI? No, no. You're talking CSI Miami. I'm talking CSI Las Vegas. Uh, Las kind Vegas. of like, uh, he had like uh, salt and pepper hair. The main guy. Oh, yes. 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 I know who he is. I know who yeah. he is now. That's Can't a good lifetime name, movie, I have to revisit that one. I have to check that one out. Yeah, man. <clears throat> so, the uh, the the Clodman defense they're they're trying to basically say that the police zeroed in on Clodman's right away and they ignored everything else. They said that there was a lack of physical evidence against their client. They asked that the jury not be swayed by assumptions and possibilities. "Quote: It is clear that Els Clodman's is not the author of sabotaging parachutes to the victim. DNA tests are all negative. Our client is not capable of committing such atrocious acts, and there is not such a motive to accuse her." Quote, early investigations focused on the argument that Els Clodman sabotaged the parachutes of the victim during the night of 10 to 11 of November 2006, passed the, in, in the apartments of Marcel. Of Marcel. Uh, it is not supported by any objective evidence. Investigators have forged their opinion and do not want to budge. And I actually agree with all of that. I do think they, they yeah. zeroed in, and rightfully so, when you consider... Except for, the, except for the, there is not much motive to accuse her. There's plenty of That's motive. wrong, right? There's absolutely motive, and she's also absolutely capable. She's shown she's capable of doing yes. something like this. She is Evidenced by four months motive. prior trying to run into an airplane, you know, flown by her freaking ex-boyfriend. Exactly. Yeah, she, she has violent tendencies with jealous rage. That, that's been shown. Yes. And she's been deemed... You know, to have psychopathic traits by three different uh, professionals at this point. So, yeah. Right. Uh, Clodemann's defense suggested another suspect, Els Van Doren's husband, Jan Wild. Quote, she has talked about divorce. She had said that she could leave in January. They would rent an apartment and Marcel would not withdraw. She's, uh, so she thought about it. Jan, Van, or Jan Wild himself, ex-paratrooper, was able to engage in sabotage. So he was also a jumper for a period of time and was capable right. of doing such a thing. Um, yeah, but and, he wasn't there, though. <laughs> yeah, and th here's uh, you know evidence to the contrary. The federal ju uh, judicial police uh, member Eugene Crab said, "quote Only after the death of his wife did Jan uh, Jan De Wild learn that his wife spent every weekend in the apartment of her lover Marcel Somers. His body language was clear when we told him." Mm. And uh, Jan Wild spoke of. Um, some more things that don't look good on Clodemans. He spoke of a dirty trick that Els Clodeman did at the funeral of his wife. Quote, we had explicitly requested that Els Clodemans not be allowed in. Quote, I've seen her in a flash at the funeral. There was a clear argument that the people of the parachute club were not welcome to salute the body of Els. Despite the agreement on the last day, the three paratroopers arrived. Els Clodemans then asked to be alone with Els. Although I had specifically asked her not to do so, when, when the others were outside, she stood there a little bit to stay with my wife. That means that Clodemans was the last person to see Els. Is there anything happening? Has she been with my wife? Uh, is a good laugh. So he's basically saying, was she alone with her to basically taunt her? Right. Uh, had she enjoyed what she had done? I do not know, but it haunts me terribly. That, man, that, that haunts me too. Like imagine a, a woman kills your wife and then you know you request that she not be there because you believe that she did this to you. And then, and then she not only shows up, but if she makes it to where she's the last person to see her, I would want to fucking kill her. Yeah, like I told you not to be here. Wishes. Yeah, it's yeah. clear that she, there was something she was getting off on that, right? Like it's got to be. Or maybe she's just trying to make us a, a point, like, oh man, she loved her so much. She's like, I, I loved it's her more calculated. than even her, even her husband, because I was the last one yeah. with her. Fuck off. Yeah, but someone like her who thinks that they're smarter than everyone else and that they're actually fooling people would would try this though. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jan also said, quote, I have a great respect for my wife. That double life apart, I have until the last second had a good life with her. Right on. He's being honest. Yep. 
So on October 20th, do what? I said, unless he did it, then that's also a really good thing to say. (laughs) If he did it, he's hiding it much better than, he's handling uh, this situation much better than Clodemans did. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think he did. I He's think much he better truly actor. loved his wife, and I think his wife was an amazing mother as well. And like we and said, they weren't they didn't have a passionate relationship anymore. They had right. more of a you know a working parental relationship. They were partners and, right. in life, and not so much like a passionate lover anymore. Right, and it's totally irrelevant. But maybe Jan had someone to meet his physical needs as well. Yeah, it's not out, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Right. I mean, it's not relevant, nor doesn't matter at all, but I'm just saying, no. possibly. Yeah. So on October 20th, 2010, after a four-week trial in the northern Flemish town of Tongren, for a jury to find her, uh, it took four weeks for the jury to find her guilty of premeditated murder, and the court sentenced Clodemans to 30 years. And although the jury found her guilty, there was no hard evidence to convict her, no confession, no witnesses, no fingerprints or DNA, not even an incriminating knife or pair of scissors that were used to cut the parachute. So they got her... It, entirely off of character testimony you know as Mm -hmm. to you know her being odd and being jealous and having low self-esteem and having issues and the fact that she had motive and was in the place with the parachute at the time that it could have been done but definitely surprising that they were able to get this conviction in my opinion yeah it is it really is no no real evidence as much as there is to make her look guilty as much doesn't look good on her and as much as i am pretty damn convinced she did it it's still like the the courts are supposed to be you know without reasonable doubt and i still think there's reasonable doubt here because there was other people that could have feasibly done this as well there were other people that could have been alone with els van doren's shoot yeah and you never know like there they could have there's could have been other people that had motive to kill her we don't know we don't know all the inner workings of all of those relationships maybe she was sleeping with someone else in the club or who knows you know yeah that's true she could have maybe she had yeah maybe she had another boyfriend there and marcel was jealous yeah, who knows? Oh, no, I'm just who kidding. knows? Um, prosecutor Patrick Boyan would say, quote, Els Van Doren saw her death coming from 4,000 meters, 13,000 feet from the ground, as if you had pushed her from the top of Mount Blanc. Clodemans was shown to have sent poison pen letters about Els Van Doren to mutual friends. Clodemans was acting jumpy on the day of the murder. The three were regular skydiving partners, and normally they would leap at the same time and make a star formation in the air. But on the day of the murder, Clodemans hung back in the airplane while the other two jumped. She was an accomplished skydiver who knew how to disable a parachute and who had motive and opportunity to carry out the deadly sabotage. And I think that's very well said. And that's the case, essentially, against her. He just broke it down in just a few sentences, basically. (laughs) And and in that way, it sounds like a really good case. It does. Um, It does. There is almost overwhelming circumstantial evidence in this one. Her waiting to jump... Her scouring the area to try and find that parachute days after yep. the fact that she had sent letters, uh, threatening letters about and phone calls and phone yep. calls. The fact that she shown uh, violent tendencies it, four months prior, trying to, you know, basically kill her ex boyfriend in the United States. Like, yeah, there's a. It's just it's hard to get past all of that stuff. It really is. Yep, no doubt. And then the way she acted afterwards too, trying to immediately yeah. distract Marcel from it and trying to gain his affection back. It's like yep. immediately she was like, I'm the only one left. You must want me now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's And then creepy. disobeying uh, Van Doren's husband's requests at the funeral yes. really makes her look like a bad person as well. Yes, it does. But she probably thought it was the opposite. She probably thought it was a good light to be seen in. Like I said, How many times have we seen that where the killer goes to the funeral of the person they murdered and tries to make it about well, them? 
Oh my it's kind God, of a lose-lose, isn't it? If they don't go, it's like they look guilty. Because it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I suppose. obviously they wouldn't be here. They killed him. And then they show up and it's like, oh, why are you here? You killed him. <laughs> it's like, what am I supposed to do? Right. <laughs> Not kill people, asshole. No, I'm just kidding. Right. right. <laughs> That's the yep. idea. That's the idea. All right, man. Well, hope you guys enjoyed this. A little something different, you know? Hell yeah. Something different, man. Do something different for your pits. Like, oh my guy, am I right? That's right. That's right, guys. Oh my guy is an innovative all natural. Maybe, maybe that's why Claudemans jumped a little bit later. She was trying to get a whiff of Els Van Doren's pits because she was wearing some sweet pea. Oof. Yeah. Maybe that's all it was. She was like, I love falling in her in her vapor trail. It's just so great. That could have been her defense. It could, it could have been, but she missed it. <laughs> if she had an American defense attorney, they would have thought of this. Right. <laughs> but oh My Guy is an innovative, all-natural deodorant fragrance and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And guys, there's tons of scents to choose from, from vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass... Uh, Egyptian musk, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, uh, bergamot, amber, barbershop, pear, sailor. And we have our very own scent that we are super proud of called True Crime Pine. I always keep a jar on hand. And because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the word creeper, C-R-E-E-P-E-R, for 15% off your order at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram or ohmygaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A dot com. Guys, you won't regret it, and uh, it's better than putting aluminum in your pits. They also got beard oil and scented oils as well, and incense. So make sure you get all your smelly good stuff from Oh My Gaia. That's right. All, all right, right, I want to take a minute to thank everyone who's gone and rated and reviewed the show this week. I want to say thank you to Slikey One, Slike One in the United okay. St- States said, Love it, five stars, especially love the Silk Road show. That was a good Hell one. Yeah, that was yeah. That's one of my favorite. Ross Holbrook, no doubt. Yeah, where we said uh, "Dead Pirate Roberts" the whole episode instead yeah, of "Yeah." Sorry about that. It's Dread yeah, Pirate. We, we realize yeah. that now after fifty people corrected us. Yeah, <laughs> it's just when you say that Whatever. so many times, it's kind of like one of those things. Like say that three times, but it's just you start to say "Dead." You don't even mean to. Right, you're just in a hurry, and it's yeah. and it's it's irrelevant. The story is so amazing. Just pay attention to the story. Yeah. Jesus. one of the better uh, books we've ever uh, used to study a case. It was a fantastic. Yes, American book. American Kingpin is what yeah. it's called. I want to say thank you to MN Bree from the United States. Said staying great, uh, four stars. That's fine. Yeah, and then that's good. said uh, she said as well. I've enjoyed this podcast for a few years now. Good humor and real reactions. Even a Patreon member. Thank you very hey, much. Right on. Then we got Heidi Mom three three eighty. I don't know. Uh, in the United <laughs> States, said longtime listener, giving some love. I'm a freeloader, tried and true. I love it when people actually understand that we're just messing yes. around like this. And, yes. Yeah. Freeloaded. Uh, that's what it's there for. Yep. She also says, I've been hanging around these parts since 2018, and I'm embarrassed to say that it's taken me this long to figure out how to rate and comment. These guys have kept me company through many hours of work, driving across country and doing housework. I've spread the love and have gotten my friends hooked on this podcast as well. I love what y'all do. Michael and Lauren, sorry if I misspelled that. Keep up the great work. You did misspell my name, but it's fine. I'm used to it. Everybody does it. Thank you very much, Heidi. And that's just as good as becoming a patron member. Spreading the show. Like if you're if you're a yes. proud freeloader and you just you know want to do your part by just telling a friend or two about the show, that's that's, that's just awesome, as awesome, guys. And I know that and I know that the majority of our listeners are this way because I'm this type of podcast listener. I never interact with the hosts. You right. Know? Me neither. It's, Me neither. 
right? You just listen and consume all their stuff and just sit there in silence and enjoy it and you never tell them. They want to know. They do want to (laughs) know, I guess. I I can speak from experience. It is good to hear that stuff. But we also have peace in knowing that a lot of you guys are enjoying this stuff and telling friends and, uh, you know, you're not plastering it all over social media and that's okay. Yep. We appreciate that. Yep. All right. Anything else? Well, yeah, uh, Patreon. Uh, next week's episode is actually going to be a Patreon-exclusive episode. There's so much content on there for two bucks a month. If you do want to become a part of the, the Freak Party on Patreon, yeah. two bucks a month gets you access to our once-a-month uh, Patreon-only episode, which, like I said, next week, uh, you will not get a free episode on the main feed. It's only going to yep. be on Patreon. We're thinking uh, Scientology has been requested so much. People want to hear it, so we're going to do our take on that. Oh, you guys aren't ready. We have to, to do it on box. Patreon because we don't want to. We don't want them coming after us. They have to. At least if Scientology's, uh, the Church of Scientology is going to come after us for the things we say, yeah. we, they're at least going to have to get through the paywall. They're going to have to pay us to do it. That's right. We'll at least get their two bucks first. <laughs> yeah, we at least get our two bucks before they come and do whatever they're going to do. We'll put that right towards our defense attorneys. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's going to really go far. <laughs> two bucks. <laughs> they'll just laugh and be like here's your two bucks you're gonna get, right. get your ass taken yeah we'll take uh, the episode down thanks yeah so two bucks a month gets you access to that and, and all of our other premium premium episodes that we've done over the years I mean, we've had a Patreon page we're grandfathered in uh, we've, oh, we've yeah. had a Patreon page for over three years now tons of episodes and if you bump up to the five dollar a month tier you get Just the Banter a show that we do every week where me and Michael get together we talk for anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half and we uh, answer a bunch of questions from Patreon members, and you get to know us a little bit better, and it's yeah. a fun time. It's a little bit looser, yeah. more fun, no crime, just good times. Yeah, just chilling. If you guys like the banter, if you guys like the tangents, just the banter may be right up your alley. We just released episode or 38. What do we call them? We call them volumes, volume 38. So there is plenty of banter to get caught up on, guys. And that's not counting the you know close to 100 Patreon-exclusive episodes that are on there. Yep. So much content and, on Patreon. And with that $5 that gets you just the banter, all of our premium episodes, everything on there, uh, you also get a gold mm-hmm. Creep Fan sticker, which I just sent out. Holy crap, I spent a few hours because I had really gotten behind. I sent, I just sent out a stack, a fat stack of, of uh, gold Creep Fan stickers. So if you haven't gotten <laughs> yours, expect it. It's coming probably the, later this week. You'll right get on. It. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, guys. We appreciate that so much. Yeah. Uh, also... Check out our merch, truecrimeguys.threadless.com. I just added a new design that is uh, for just the banter. It says, uh, I'm just here for the banter, true crime guys. So just a basic logo shirt, and we have all kinds of shit with all of our logos, guys, from T-shirts, tank tops, sweaters, hoodies, uh, everything from mouse pads to framed art to uh, coffee mugs, travel mugs, Everything you guys could want with your True Crime Guys logos and merch on there. We guys, we appreciate that so much. And again, that's truecrimeguys.threadless.com. You can check the links right below the description. Check out our link tree. It's the first link right below our description. So that's everything True Crime Guys there. Even our other show, Strange and Unexplained, which releases on Mondays um, on wherever you listen on the free platform. So, and that's where we tackle unsolved, missing persons, strange phenomena, some cult cases as well. Um, a little bit of everything. It's just a little bit different format. I host it. I bring you, I bring you the facts. I bring you some of my opinions, speculation. And then Lauren has his own segment on the show called Lauren's Synopsis, where he jumps in and he breaks down what he thinks. 
So there's not a whole lot of back and forth on that show, but you get to hear our opinions completely unbiased, un... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Interfered Unadulterated. With, you know, yeah, unadulterated by each other, you know, because sometimes yeah. we convince each other and it's kind of fun to see what Don't he adulterate me, Michael. Don't you dare adulterate me. I, I won't adulterate you, man. I would never do that. Come on. Because I'm about to break this... Break it down the case like cardboard boxes. <laughs> That's right. That's what you're known for. If you guys want to hear Lauren break down the case like cardboard boxes, check out Strange and Unexplained every Monday. And of course, there's a Patreon for that show as well. Patreon.com slash podcast. But just check out the free stuff first, you know? See what you like it. Dip your toe in the water. Check out some That's of the right. Sandu right. stories. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's about it, guys. I'll check out our album on Spotify or on Apple Music, iTunes, True Crime Guys, Killer Mixtape. Check that out. Social media, True Crime Guys everywhere, at True Crime Guys yep. as well. Yep, and yep, yep, yep. Yep. That's it. What more can you ask good. for? See you next week on right. Patreon. Uh, otherwise, freeloaders, see you the following week for yep. another batch of free episodes. Keep creeping. Have a great week, guys. Yep. Keep creeping, guys. True Crime Guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was True Crime Garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the Creeper Army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. True crime guys in the desert. We like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us, cause you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the Creeper Army. We out here making murder charming. Yeah.